Well, we welcome everybody to this week's edition of View from the Press Box. I'm Scott Hogan, and joining me is Brad Hallier. And, well, Brad, uh, I was really having a tough time deciding what topic we should start with tonight. You know, baseball opening day, this is Wednesday, is tomorrow. You know, the NFL uh, is in the news or anything. But I, I kind of got the feeling that you might want to talk a little uh, Kansas Jayhawk basketball tonight. That'd be all right. <laughs> and we joke of course because if uh, you had to be hiding under a rock if you didn't know it of course on monday night the kansas jayhawks uh did the improbable overcame the largest championship game deficit in history to claim their fourth national title in basketball 72 69 over north carolina a game rad that I probably, like a lot of people, debated on whether to watch the second half after the final about ten and a half minutes of the first half after the hot start. KU scored one field goal in that time frame, and we're and we're down at one time sixteen, trail by fifteen at halftime. What 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 did you think at halftime after it looked so good early, and then it just it looked awful at halftime? Well, after. Let's see what I do at the under four timeout. I went and shaved. I changed, <laughs> I changed out of my sweatshirt and put on a different T-shirt. I brushed my teeth to get the foul, what foulness, whatever. I mean, so anyway, uh, by, by the time I was done, there was maybe a minute and a half left in the first half. And, you know, halftime comes and I'm in a grouchy mood. But I, I, I'll be honest, Scott, there's one thing that I was kind of holding on to. Yeah, Kansas was down to uh, 40 to, to 25. And, you know, they, they couldn't throw the basketball into the ocean if they tried. But there's actually one thing that I was kind of banking on that thought maybe the Jayhawks still had a chance in this one. And that's that North Carolina only shot 36% in the first half. A lot of that was off uh, offensive rebounds. So I was just thinking, you know, if the Jayhawks can get some rebounds here and get in transition a little bit, maybe they can come back and make this, you know, give themselves a chance. Well, incidentally, they got out-rebounded by 20. Mm. Uh, but you know, North Carolina did indeed continue that non-impressive shooting. So, you know, they scored 40 points in the first half. Uh, they really didn't shoot it very well. And that was just the kind of thing I was banking on for the second half is that Carolina would not be able to – well, that, that Carolina would continue to shoot like that. And then Kansas, you know, would eventually snap out of it, which they did. Did, did you think even um, when you look at some of the stats at the end of the game – what was it they gave? Was it 22 offensive rebounds that North Carolina had? Is that what they found? No, it was over 20. Yeah, it was uh, it, it was a pretty ridiculous number. Their second chance points. Oh, gosh, I'll, I'll, see if I, I'll see if I can bring up the box score here. But their second chance points were something along the lines of, I don't know, like 28 to, to, 28 to 6 or something like that. I mean, if Kansas just does – even a uh, uh, slightly below average performance on the boards and second chance points and all that. I mean, they win that game by double digits probably. Yeah. It was crazy to see a, a differential like that on the offensive glass and also uh, in free throw percentage, which KU did not shoot the, the ball from the line. Um, Obaji really struggled at the line. They hit enough of them. Um, ultimately in the end, this one really for me just felt like, Two things that won the game for KU obviously was shooting over 54% in the second half. But all in all, I know there was there's always going to be times you give up easy baskets, but I thought the staple for them really from the end of the regular season through the Big 12 and the NCAA tournament, it was their defense that got them where they were. Right, and that kind of goes back, you know, to Carolina shooting just 36% in the first half, and let's see what they shoot for the game, uh, 36%, uh, well, actually 31% for the game. You know, 36%, I mean, if you told me that Kansas was going to hold Carolina to 36% shooting in the first half, I thought I would think that, you know, worst-case scenario, they're down by one or two points or something mm -hmm. like that. So they really didn't do a bad job. They just, two things in that first half, you know, they couldn't get offensive re or they couldn't get defensive rebounds, and they just couldn't finish at the other end. So they – just those two simple things right there. And, uh, you know, Scott, we talked a lot about this throughout the season. You know, the, we thought that the two kind of X factors for Kansas, if they were going to win a national championship, and I hate to toot our own horns here, but we were pretty prophetic about it. And that was Remy Martin, who, other than this national semifinals against Villanova, had a sensational postseason. And, of course, David McCormick, who, if we're being honest, was robbed of most outstanding player. 
yeah i i was i was surprised i i even thought remy martin might possibly um get that i was a little surprised i think um I mean, not that he didn't deserve it, but I, I thought like you did, maybe David McCormick would get that. But yeah, you know, I t- we talked a lot about it throughout the year that, you know, I was a true believer that KU would go as far as, as David McCormick's performance would take them. And what was it, 15 and 10 or 16 and 10 uh, in the championship game? Of course, he had the, the go ahead, that little jump hook off of an offensive rebound. And then, of course, um, when Baycott, tried to go into the paint re-aggravates that ankle um they go right to him just like the announcers were saying with him out they should go right to david mccormick and that's exactly what they did i was a little perturbed at when it was five on four and baycott was laying on the other end they didn't press that advantage at that point uh it all worked out but yeah david mccormick i think he did a lot of things and i think another thing that he did with this performance throughout this tournament brad has moved himself possibly into the first round of the NBA draft. Yeah, potentially. Uh, I think uh, a healthy David McCormick is a serviceable NBA player. At worst, he's going to have himself, you know, worst case scenario for David McCormick here coming up is he's going to have himself a 15-year European career. And I believe it was uh, Keith Langford who played in a, a couple final fours for the J- or a final, couple final fours for the Jayhawks back in 2002 and 2003 has made himself a great career. Uh, but playing in Europe. And at one time, something uh, you know, the someone caught up with him and did an interview with him. And they said, you know, don't you still have that NBA dream? And he's like, well, of course I do. But, you know, why would I want to sign a bunch of 10, 10 day contracts with no guaranteed work when I can play over in Europe, make a million dollars a year and have guaranteed contracts and stuff like that. And I think that's, you know, that, and for David McCormick, that's worst case scenario for him. Yeah. I think the ceiling's very high and you know, the way that, and they always have, a lot of times MBA um, executives, they draft on potential and they do that, especially with big men. And I, I really think that just these last couple of years, and maybe even if you go back to the, the year that they were the would have been the number one overall seed and the tournament was canceled, um, even that year, I think that the, he is just now tapping into how good he can be. And I think NBA scouts have been watching that and and I've seen them time after time you scratch your head a little bit how high they take some of these big men some of them pan out some don't but they are certainly willing to take a chance on developing a a big man especially with the skills it looks like that David McCormick does have well good athlete good free throw shooter he can hit a mid-range jumper I think if there's one thing he probably needs to work on is hitting uh, maybe, you know, being, being able to knock down a three-pointer like Joel Embiid has, has showed the ability to. So, But I do think that McCormick definitely has the ability to play at the next level. I do think he'll get drafted, and I do think he'll get the opportunity to play in the NBA. I, I really hope that uh, – wish him the best. You know, Scott, incidentally, he could come back to Kansas if he wanted to. Uh, doubt that'll happen. Uh, as you know, he's taken – he's in the same master's program that I'm in. He got his master's in three years. He's getting his master's in one year so. Uh, he still has this COVID year if he wanted to, but I, I do think that we've seen the last of David McCormick, but what a way for him to go out that often. And that's one thing we forget is that not only did he score those last four points for Kansas, but the go-ahead basket came after a miss and offensive rebound. Yeah, a couple other points in this game I wanted to talk about. Didn't it feel like – now, I understand it's just two points. It was the first play of the second half, but didn't you just – feel a little different about that game with that little alley-oop to, for the stuff to McCormick to start the second half. Didn't it just feel like, okay, something just kind of a switch just kind of flipped right then. Uh, you know, in hindsight, maybe, but I'll tell you what the one play in the second half where I thought, okay, this, this could happen like early on, not, not when Kansas got it tied or went ahead by, you know, three or six points, but you know, really the first time, in the second half where I thought, yeah, you know what, Kansas may be onto something here, is, uh, is maybe a minute after that dunk. And Kansas, I think, had just turned the ball over. And on the on – the, uh, so, no, I think Kansas actually may have just scored. Uh, and then North Carolina tried to take the ball out, and the guy stepped over the, the, the end line. Inbound and, yeah, yeah, and I'm just uh, – on the baseline there, and I'm just thinking – that's the kind of play that happens when you're when you're when you're not focused and you're a little rattled, 
And so that was kind of the first time that I thought, you know, not just from Kansas's end, that North Carolina was thinking, you know, they, they, they it just felt like that to me. Those first couple of minutes really set the tone for the rest of the game, and it really did. I know Carolina definitely had their chances to win. They played well enough to win, but those first couple of minutes really set the tone for the second half. Did you feel like um... – <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about him a couple of times, but uh, Charles Barkley, as I watched a lot of the post game, um, he kept harping about, he, he, he didn't even recognize the Kansas team in the first half. He, he, but he, he talked about pace of play, how they started to push things more and get transition baskets and speed the game up instead of going in the half court. Did you really feel like that that also greatly contributed to them to, to get back in this thing and ultimately winning? Well, look how many uh, transition points. They didn't have a ton, but they had a lot of them in the second half. Brown got out in transition a couple times. I know that Dewan Harris, whose defense was just incredible in the second half, had that steal and then Mm -hmm. bounced past to Jalen Wilson for a three-point play. And so they did get – again, they didn't get in transition a ton, but they did just enough. I look at the uh, fast break points here. Uh, that's for just the first half, but the the fast break points by the end of the game, you know, again, it wasn't a huge advantage for Kansas, uh, just 10 points to two for Carolina, but that's an eight point difference right there. Yeah. And when you, <laughs> ultimately a game is decided by three points, you, that's, that's those kind of, I don't know if they're so hidden numbers, but you look at all those little things, you start winning enough categories by a little margin that adds up um, to a victory. Uh, I thought Remy Martin, you already mentioned him, uh, Boy, he banked that three-pointer in in the first half, but he hit a couple of monster threes that weren't easy threes that were guarded. Uh, I thought that really, really were a catalyst, as I thought he was throughout the whole postseason. Yeah, uh, Remy Martin made some some very difficult shots uh, and, and big shots too. He had a couple quick three-pointers from the corner. Uh, one of them gave Kansas. I think it may have given Kansas their first lead of the second half about the 10-minute mark, mm-hmm. and then he had that step-back three-pointer with some, what, two and a half minutes left in the second half, and I think I put up Kansas up, what, 72-69 maybe, and when he hit when he hit that shot, I just remember thinking, wow, I mean, that, there's so few college basketball players that have the ability to make that, yeah, 240 left when he made that shot, uh, to, so few college basketball players have the ability to make that shot. Well, let's talk about the last 4.6 seconds of the game. Uh, I probably, like um, 100% of KU fans, fell to the floor when they ran that inbound play and Harris steps on the sideline and and gives North Carolina the ball right there with a a chance to win. And then I want to get your opinion on that play and then also choosing not to foul and make Carolina shoot one and one instead of giving them a chance to shoot a three-point play. What did you think about that last, what ultimately was 4.6 seconds of the game? Well, my whole end of the game analysis, actually I want to go back a little bit before that, after McCormick scored the final points of the game, Kansas has a three-point lead, and I know the natural inclination is go get the game tied. And I understand that. I, I don't want to discount that for a second. But Kansas was just in the one and one at the time. and. They have, they did not show great poise in those pressure free throw situations, especially against Providence. And I was a little surprised that North Carolina was so adamant trying to get the game tied and said maybe get driving to the basket, getting an easy two points, and making Kansas try to shoot some pressure free throws, especially a one and one. So that was a little surprising to me. And then yeah, the um, the the. The, the, the turnover by Harris are just really poor court awareness, obviously. Uh, there's really no excuse for that. Uh, I, I do want to say, though, if they had tied the game, I still like Kansas' chances in overtime with McCormick against Mannequin, the paint. Yeah. But then, uh, the you know, Bill Self's never been a big fan of fouling up three. I, I think he's done it once or twice in his career. But um, I think with 4.3 seconds left, unless they're bringing the ball 94 feet, I'm not sure I want to risk a foul unless – they're going away from the basket, like catching the ball, running away from the basket, because that's the only play that they have. Maybe something like that. But uh, someone actually, Scott, had done an analysis of three-point games in the last 10 seconds. It's been a few years since this uh, report came out. But the percentage of the – you know, the percentages actually were pretty even on the team that won the game 
or the team that was winning would win the game at the same number of times fouling as opposed to letting the other team just shoot a three-pointer. So uh, I'm, I'm – gosh, it, it's, it's so easy to do hindsight. But honestly, Scott, i am always been kind of on the impression play defense. Yeah, I mean, obviously it, it worked out. And, and Brown played very good defense, and they still got a good look at the basket. Of course, I know with that little of time, I think always the fear is – you try to go to foul, a guy just hurls his body at you, throws the ball up, and the officials buy it and give you three free throws. I know that's probably a huge fear in the back of most coaches' minds that they don't want to ever put somebody at the line a chance to shoot free, three free throws and tie the game. But I, like you, was, I don't want to say shocked, but very surprised that North Carolina, as you mentioned, they just started jacking up those you know, 28-foot threes there um, when they're still outside of 20 seconds left, um, when KU was, I think the next foul would have just put them at the one and one, or they either had six or seven team fouls. So they had some fouls they could give for one and ones and they didn't make, um, KU go to the line. But ultimately, uh, I go back to, to Charles Barkley, who, um, did, did you catch the, him calling him Ojabi? I know I didn't. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, and that's only, only Charles could do that and, and just keep going. Um, but he did, but he, he said that he felt like, and I, and I truly did coming into the game. I felt like KU was the better team, um, that, you know, I didn't necessarily mean they were going to win the game, but I just felt like that they were top to bottom, a better team than North Carolina. And I think that certainly showed up in the second half, uh, for the Jayhawks to win this fourth national title. Carolina still had – I mean, they got NBA-caliber players. They kind of wonder how they only ended up, ended up with an eight seed. I think ultimately what the difference was was the depth that Kansas had. When you can bring in Mitch Lightfoot, who had a couple points, and uh, I know he was in foul trouble most of the night, but he's kind of expendable like that anyway. But when you're bringing Remy Martin in off the bench too, I mean, that's just uh, uh, just an invaluable piece. And they, I know they didn't play very much, but, you know, K.J. Adams has proven himself at times this year. He played a couple of minutes. And, Scott, did you actually notice – for those last four seconds, K.J. Adams was actually out on the floor. He was. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. yeah. So um, I just think that Kansas' depth was, was a big factor in there. You know, their uh, Carolina's big man. Boy, he, boy, their big man is a beast. Be, <clears throat> excuse me. A beast, isn't he, Scott? That guy, yeah. it was kind of unfortunate seeing him hurt like that because he's such a good player. But even then, you know, McCormick, I think, did more than held his own against, uh, you know, a guy – who most likely uh, Armando, uh, how do you say his last name, uh, Bacot or something Bacot. like that? Bacot, yeah. Um, he's going he's gonna to make his millions in the NBA too. So uh, it was definitely, you know, a great matchup. I just think that Kansas just had a slight edge at more positions, also a slight edge in depth, and also a slight edge in coaching. What would you say? You know, you know the KU haters are always going to be out there. They're going to point out the fact, well, you got to play Villanova in the Final Four without their second-leading score. And then in crunch time, Baycott twists his ankle, and he's not in the game to defend McCormick, um, who puts him up by three. What, what, what would you say to, to those uh, KU haters? Well, first of all, I do understand it to a certain extent. You want to have you know, uh, as healthy of teams as possible. But I would also retort that in 2003, Kansas had to play the entire NCAA tournament without Wayne Simeon. Yeah. Made it all the way to the finals, lost by three to Syracuse. They're going to tell me that Kansas wouldn't have beaten Syracuse without a healthy Wayne Simeon. I know Jeff Graves had a great championship game and all that, but, you know, 10 and 10 from Graves, that's probably 17 and 13 for Simeon. And, uh, you know, Roy gets his title going out to North Carolina. And let's also not forget, I think it was, what, 2014? Joel Embiid, same kind of deal. I mean, he's had him. He he he's proven to be a pretty good player himself, hasn't he? Um, so and injuries. Yeah. Look, they 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 suck. There's no question about it. But you know, no one was crying for Kansas when Wayne Simeon was hurt. Nobody was crying for Kansas when Joel Embiid was hurt. It's part of the game. It sucks, but it's part of the game. Yeah, it it is. And and I've always said to to win. The NCAA tournament, you've got to catch some breaks. Nobody goes from start to finish of that tournament without somewhere along the line catching a couple huge breaks in a game or a couple of different games. It, it just doesn't happen because of the quality of teams that you're going to run into. So when you when you get those opportunities, you have to you have to take full advantage of them, just like 
KU did when Baycott went out, they went right back into to DMAC to put them up by three. I mean, you just you have to do that. It's unfortunate, but that is that's just the game. Right. I mean, you got to go back to the 1988 Kansas team that won it all. You talk about breaks. I mean, <laughs> they, they 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 had probably the most glorious path they could have they they could have not scripted a better path for themselves. You know, after game by the first round, they played the 14 seed, then they played the 10 seed, then they played K State. You know who they're familiar with. Then they played Duke, who'd beaten Kansas and Lawrence earlier that year. Then they played another Big Eight team in the championship game. So. Uh, if you really want to talk about a team that maybe was a little bit blessed, it was that team, you know, the 2008 team, you know, someone, I saw someone today say, oh, they, they, they had a Mickey Mouse path too. I mean, did they? Uh, four of their six games that year were against the highest seed possible. And one of those teams, Scott, just happened to have a guy named Steph Curry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a crapshoot. The NCAA tournament voice is, you see the upsets. And again, you got to have, um, breaks when they come um what do you think now about i saw dick vitale chime in on this today you know the still the, the ncaa is still not um officially ruled on all of the investigation that they've had and and, and people are well they're going to get the title stripped from them because of the investigation i i did see dick vitale come in he said he said look guys this title is going to be KU's to keep no player that was on this team or involved in the investigation it was on this team he said it just it's not going to affect this team they're going to be, remain national champions regardless of what um the ncaa ultimately says what, what, what do you feel like well first of all if i'm not mistaken scott uh two of the players that have been in question regarding this whole investigation were billy preston who never played a minute for kansas and silvio de sosa who sat out several games when Kansas was worried about his potential eligibility and came back when essentially getting the green light from the NCAA. I don't know what's going to happen with it, Scott. I mean, the, the people who say this, the title is going to be stripped are so blind by hatred that I, you know, there's, there's no point in even arguing with them. But I have heard that the, the speculation is that Bill Self could receive a one or even two-year postseason ban. And if you think about it, Scott, wouldn't that ultimately maybe make the most – shouldn't that have been maybe the case all these years – Instead of punishing the current program, the current players who had absolutely nothing to do with maybe any kind of previous violations, don't put the, you know, like Oklahoma State this year. You know, it wasn't fair to punish, it's not fair to punish the, the players who had nothing to do with any of that. But, you know, maybe punishing the people who were in, and I'm not, and I, I'm not saying Bill Self did anything or Curtis Townsend did anything. I'm just saying that if that's what the NCAA decides, ultimately, going after those people and saying, okay, you're banned from the postseason for a couple of years so your team can play. To me, that just makes a lot more sense. It does. I mean, I, you've seen so often that the, the coach, all the players, even some of the administrators are not even at the school anymore when all this is discovered and, and completely innocent players, coaches, staff members are punished for something that happened, you know, eight years previous and it, it, it's never made any sense. That's why I like the show cause that they can hit coaches with. Now, if, you know, they find out you did something at your previous school or whatever, you cannot coach anywhere for five years. I, I think that's a step in the right direction. I, I like that. And I, I also would um, be in favor of something like that to actually, um, keep the kids that were not involved in it whatsoever out of the disciplinary um, actions that are taken. I like that. Well, with the name, image, and likeness, I think you're going to see the NCAA is going to have just even less power now to go after these schools and these coaches and whatnot due to the, the new uh, NIL. So, and that kind of makes it even funnier is that, you know, Kansas <laughs> could be getting potentially in trouble for something that might be legal now. So yeah, uh, so just another interesting dynamic here uh again kansas is not going to get stripped to their title I, I would bet my house on that um kansas will i i don't see a team ban i wouldn't bet my house on that but i don't see a team ban uh like i said the most likely thing that i've heard is that bill self and potentially curtis townsend could receive a one or two year postseason ban well, we will wait and see about that. That's, and who knows, the way they've been dragging their feet on all of this. <laughs> we could be weeks, months away from hearing from the NCAA. But again, the Kansas Jayhawks, their fourth national title on Monday night, 
over North Carolina. Uh, one other college basketball topic before we move on. Have, have you seen the, um, I don't want to call it fallout, but all that's gone on now at the, at the Cinderella this year, St. Peter's, have you seen all of that? I think they've had four players now enter the transfer portal. I know for sure three of their frontline players and a coach, their coach is now the coach at Seton Hall. Um, what do you think about the whole transfer portal thing and, and players that, you know, have this one miracle run at St. Peter's kind of put them on the map and now coach is gone. Three or four of their best players are gone. So you, you know, it's just going to decimate them. I think that the way it is right now, it's too, it, it's too unstructured, Scott. It's too, I think I'm in favor of, kids transferring without penalty but i think there needs to be maybe certain restrictions on that for example i think maybe if a, if a team's coach leaves like st peter's did yes. okay anybody now can leave immediately and enter the transfer portal uh, or another example uh, i've always thought that the senior transfer grad transfer thing that that's fine that's that's been around for years and 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 i also think that maybe like a one time deal where you know you can transfer without you can enter the portal no penalty play right away you know maybe it's just not a good fit for you but you know you see players like charlie moore who's been those who's been like to five different schools I'm not sure that's exactly in the end of what the portal has been all about um again I, I think it's a little too unstructured right now i am in favor of a free transfer maybe maybe one guaranteed for any for every player and maybe add like leaves you you're you're welcome to leave uh, without penalty as well and of course keep the graduate transfer thing in place as well but overall it's i mean you're going to see kids you know playing seriously you know for four schools in four years yeah i i'm pretty much feel the way you do i i think you know one freebie if you want to call it that if you know you just get to a school it's not a fit um you can leave or and then you could get a second one if your coach um, takes a different job because be it as it may and people can say it as many times as they want to. Oh, you should be going to the school because of you like the school. We all know they're going to play for the coach. And that's right. just the fact. Um, and I'm fine with the, the, the fifth year senior that, like you said, that transfer um, that's been around for a long time, but yeah, th- there needs to be something like you said about guys that are they're uh, they're, they're playing in four schools in five years. I, I, I just, I, I'm more of a guy, a loyalty guy. I would love, I would love to see these kids stay at St. Peter's, um, wait and see who the new coach is. You know, maybe you can run this thing forward and, and, and get back and, and do something again next year. I just, I just think it, it, at the smaller schools, like, you know, the KUs of the world, that's not gonna, you know, you're going to lose good players, but you chances are you're going to replace them with one just as good. Um, it's the smaller schools like this. I think that it can really, really damage. So I'm like, yeah, I'd like to see a little bit more um, structure and rules in place for that, that kind of restricted a little bit more than it is now. And I think we could see that eventually. Um, I think that, I, I think the more this, the longer this kind of goes on unregulated and just kind of a free for all, the more likely you will eventually see some kind of reform and some kind of restrictions uh, catch up. And so it, it may take three, four or five years for that to happen, but I do think we will see, you know, some kind of, some kind of restriction eventually. Well, as we leave the topic of college basketball, in case anybody wants to know the way too early top 25 is out for next year, Arkansas was rated number one. So yeah, that, that came out Tuesday morning after KU had won the title, like, like they know what's going to happen um, tomorrow, let alone next season. So um, we move on. We mentioned um, at the top of the show, this is Wednesday evening we're recording. So Thursday is opening day, um, a week postponed, but here comes Major League Baseball is back, and that means the Royals will open up tomorrow. They're going to open up at the K in the afternoon. It's showing a 310 start against, uh, and this is going to take me quite a while. The Cleveland Guardians are going to be in town for, it looks like, I think it's a three game. I just have a couple of the games up. 
Um, so kicking off the season, I guess maybe the biggest headline here recently, a couple of them, they, they did something. They restructured um, Whit Merrifield's contract here recently, I think, to keep him a little bit longer. And also uh, Bobby Witt Jr. has made the opening day roster. I'm looking at a lot of the names, a lot of the same names from last year. Um, Zach Grinke, of course, comes in. What what do you think realistically we can expect from the Royals this year? I think that, you know, a, a best case scenario would be a 500 season probably. I I, I think the team is still kind of young and um, just – and I don't know if they – honestly, if they had the pitching yet to really kind of dive into a, uh, you know, a 90-win season and a postseason berth and all that, but – I think a best case scenario would be about a 500 season. And I think uh, if uh, you told me right now that the Royals would go 81 and 81, I, well, I'll tell you, I'll take it right now. So I do think that uh, there's still a lot of uh, intangibles out there that we not really are sure about, like, especially Bobby Wood Jr. I, you know, I, I think the world of the kid, he's going to be a great player. Uh, I, I wouldn't anticipate an all-star type season from him this year, but you know, I, I do think that the Royals are definitely seem to be moving in the right direction when it comes to, you know, the players that they're getting, then their draft picks and some of the acquisitions that they've been making. So, but I do think that not, not yet, not just not quite yet. I I, I heard that they're either the youngest or one of the youngest opening day rosters in baseball this year. So um, we know they're going to be extremely young Um, on Bobby Witt Jr., do you like the timing of them bringing him um, onto the opening day roster? Would you like to have seen them um, maybe spend a little bit more time at double or triple A? I'm sure that they had those conversations and I'm sure that at the end of the day, they probably thought he's ready. (laughs) And honestly, I don't see any reason why not to bring him up. You know, you always have to be careful with young players ruining their confidence. If you know, Bobby Wood comes up and starts, you know, two for 35 or something like that. (laughs) You, you do worry about something like that. But ultimately, let's be honest, if he was starting this season in the minors, he would most likely have been with the big club at the latest by Memorial Day. Well, it's a Thursday, Saturday, Sunday. They play the Guardians at the K. Um, oh, and Monday. I guess it is going to be a four-game series as they look at the schedule. Then they're going to um, already start interleague play. They're going to do the I-70 series, then the following Tuesday and Wednesday, they'll play at the Cardinals, of course. And another new rule that I love, when they play at the Cardinals, there will be a DH. I, I think that was way overdue, in my opinion. Hey, if the National League teams think their brand of baseball was better all those years, use it still. Yeah, they, I don't care if the Cardinals <laughs> bat the pitcher. I'm all, Actually, I'm all for it. Yeah, I mean, if it's a superior brand, uh, Royals will play by their rules. They'll, they'll do the DH, and Cardinals, you can do the double switch and pitching and all that. Go ahead, knock yourself out. Yeah, guess what? You're probably going to lose more than you win. It sounds good to me. Uh, of course, we'll we'll keep tabs on the Royals each week and see. Um, yeah, I'd be ecstatic. 81 and 81, I think that would be fantastic for the Royals this year. A little more baseball talk, Brad. I actually did a Warrior baseball game over at Sterling College yesterday. I kind of had a feeling what happened was going to happen. They were playing the number five ranked team in the country, Oklahoma City. And just every year, year after year after year, Oklahoma City is a top five or ten team in the country. Um, They had been beaten in March down there 13-1. to They come into Sterling yesterday. Sterling has, was playing a makeup conference game this evening. Then they play a three-game series Friday, Saturday conference game. So I was pretty sure the Warriors were going to save their better arms for the, the conference games, which they did. And Oklahoma City just came in and just pounded out. They had 22 hits uh, against the Warriors in seven innings yesterday en route to a 19-1 to victory over the Warriors and um, Warriors came off of a, a getting swept by Bethany over the weekend and they are 14 or four and 14 in the KCAC 12 and 22 overall 
And the number six spot, which is the final team that would get in the postseason tournament right now, sits at 500 at nine and nine. So realistically, uh, you've got 15 games left, Brad. I think you would have to win probably maybe 10 to 12 of those games to have a shot to get into the postseason tournament because that would get you to about 500. So from what I've seen, just no consistency uh, off and on run support pitching is struggling. I, I just don't see the Warriors being able to, to put things together to, to get into the postseason. Well, I see their next two KCAC series are against friends and Oklahoma Wesleyan. And then they also have a midweek game against McPherson. I'm not sure if that's a, is that a non-con or is that a makeup game on well, Tuesday, the, Tuesday the, the 19th? Uh, the way they do the conference schedule, the, the, you, they don't have enough time to play everybody uh, like a weekend three-game series. So they split those other conference games up into week middle-of-the-week games. So that would be another conference game with McPherson. <laughs> right now, Mac and friends are tied for second in Oklahoma Westland. The preseason favorite is fifth. So to say, and I'm going to have that Oklahoma Westland series um, on the Sterling College Sports Network, but to say that they're getting into the meat of their schedule is an understatement. Yeah, I mean, uh, with you know, ten uh, their next uh, seven games would then be against the teams that are second, fourth, and fifth, and that's seven games combined right there. Uh, man, and mm. friend and friends at fifteen and four actually tied for third. So, boy, wins are going to be tough to come by. You know, you're, they're getting to the point in the season where even winning two out of three against somebody like Friends, that 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 may not be good enough, Scott. That just may not be good enough. And then when they get into someone like St. Mary later on, you know, they're they're gonna have to sweep them. There, there's no other way to say it. They, they, if they want to have any chance to make the postseason, when they play a, a team like St. Mary, they're gonna have to take all three of them. And you know, it, it's hard. It, it's a tough task. But not only are they going to have to sweep a team like St. Mary, but, you know, they're going to have to figure out how to maybe eke out a, a series win against somebody like Friends. Yeah, I just you just don't see it happening. Now, on the flip side of that, it it excites me to no end for the postseason tournament, which I get the privilege of calling all of those games over in Great Bend. When you look, you got 16-3 and three Ottawa, then Mac, Tabor, Friends, currently all tied at 15-4. and four. And then Oklahoma Wesleyan, who I'm still convinced is going to put things together at 10 and 9. I mean, that tournament could be, I mean, some fantastic up for grabs baseball when we get to that first week of May. And I just, that's the kind of tournament I love when when you've got four or maybe even five teams that could legitimately win the tournament. Well, then the battle for sixth place is going to be just as exciting, I think, when you got... Uh, well, even fifth place, Oklahoma Wesleyan, K-Dub, and Bethany and York all within a few games of each other. So, uh, you know, the race just to make it in is going to be pretty exciting. So more KCAC baseball again. I'll have the Oklahoma Wesleyan series. Um, that would be a week from Saturday um, if you want to tune in to the Sterling College Sports Network. Well, um, we'll stay on Sterling College, Brad, because a very intriguing Hire was made. Um, you actually texted me. I was doing high school baseball um, last Friday, um, and I had really bad internet where I was, so you kind of filled me in that the new head men's basketball coach at Sterling College is Randy Stang, a person you know well from his days at Hutchison Community College, the longtime athletic director, and he coached the Blue Dragons for four seasons from ninety. 93 to 97, um, winning the region six. Um, I think, and it was that his final year that he did that. Yeah. 96, 97 was his last year as a coach. And yeah, they won region six that year and went on to the, the national tournament. Most recently was the AD, I believe Johnson County, correct? That's right. Um, so I guess let's start right there. What, what did you, what was your first impression when you saw that come across the airwaves that he was, getting back into coaching after a 25-year layoff? I think my first reaction was, wow. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. Uh, gosh, I mean, Scott, I was still at uh, I was still at Allen County Community College when Randy was uh, coaching at uh, Hutch. So, But, boy, I tell you what, he, he's got a great coaching resume. Um, 
you know, coaching with Charlie Spoonhour at uh, Southwest Missouri and then St. Louis University. I mean, he's got a great pedigree. He's got a lot of connections. You know, one of the things I'm actually going to be curious about, Scott, is the staff he puts together. You know, Randy's a very well-connected guy, so I'm going to be very curious to see uh, what kind of staff he manages to put together over there. I, you know, it, from a you know, what do I think of the hire? I mean, look, <sighs> Sterling College men's basketball is in a place right now where they need they, they need something. They needed someone established, I think. Someone who could, you know, that, that could really coach. And I think that's Randy. You know, we'll have to wait to see what kind of recruiting he can do. I'm sure that might be something that he passes over to, to his assistants or something like that. But there's no doubt that Randy can coach. You know, there, there's no question that he can still coach. And I don't have any doubt that he's going to improve this program. And maybe really get you know I'm not I'm not going to proclaim any national tournament appearances or anything like that, but it wouldn't <laughs> surprise me to see within three years to see Randy having Sterling College men's basketball in the KCAC tournament. Well, well, you mentioned the the, the recruiting. Let's start with the, of course the two biggest questions that most people would have, and I had right initially is, okay, he hasn't coached or actively recruited in 25 years. Let's start with recruiting. How much do you think, as far as his staff that he puts together, will he get guys that have been recruiting very recently to, to really really help with putting a, a team together? How much do you think he'll rely on his assistance for that? Well, that's a great question, and I I, I would lean toward I think that he's going to bring in someone who is pretty uh, an assistant. I think who is well connected. And like I said, Randy's a well-connected guy. He's going to bring in some, he, he's going to bring in a couple of assistants, I think that are well-connected as well. So uh, I, I think Randy will more or less just, uh, you know, handle the coaching side of things. I mean, he's going to, he's obviously going to have to sign off on everybody, but you know, Randy's a personable guy. He's such a friendly guy. I mean, everyone who meets Randy likes the guy. And, uh, but the one thing I'm going to be really curious about with Randy saying, Scott, I heard that guy was a heck of a foot stomper back in the day. I'll be curious. If he, I'll be curious if he still has that because, Hey, when you get older, you kind of mellow out a little bit, man. But I'll be curious if Randy still has that fire and that foot stomping ability. Well, I tell you what, Coach Lonnie Cruz always wore cowboy boots. He was a fantastic foot stomper. So it's going to be hard to outdo <laughs> uh, Coach K, our Coach K over at Sterling College. The real Coach K. Yeah, the real Coach K. Um, but I'll be very interested. Um, how about not coaching in 25 years the game has the in 25 years. Of course, the game is going to change from when he last coached. Um, the players are going to be playing a different style than they did coming out of high school, or even if he brings in some JUCO kids. Um, how do you think he'll adapt to the player of today? That's a great question. But having been in in administration, uh, not just in college, but also in high school, you know, he was the um, athletic director for Springfield, Missouri public schools for a few years. So he's been around high school athletics. You know, he knows what these kids and, and look, he, he's a student of the game. I remember he was sitting next to me at Hutch Juco games and you, you could tell he was not just watching. He's analyzing as well. And, you know, he had a great track record at Hutch of hiring. That's what makes me optimistic that he's going to put together a pretty good staff. You know, he hired Steve Eck. He hired Ryan Rhodes. He hired Rhonda Shirley for volleyball. He hired uh, Kyle Crooks and Ryan Schmidt for baseball. He had a great. He's got a great track record of hires, and I have no doubt that's the, the, based on that he's going to be able to bring in a great staff. But as far as coaching X's and O's style of play, that's something I'll be curious about too. But I have no doubt that Randy is going to be able to adapt that uh, to that because. He hasn't just been going to games all these years and watching it. You know, I know how Randy works. He he doesn't just watch a game and, oh, this is fun. No, he's studying the game. I, I have no doubt that he is going to continue, that, that he, he, he'll he know what he's doing still. Well, I know uh, Justin Morris and Scott Downing, the, the co-ADs over at Sterling, I, the, I know one thing they're ready to stop doing is hiring new coaches because he's number four. Um, they've hired uh, women's soccer, tennis, football and now men's basketball this year so i think they're ready to stop taking uh, resumes and doing interviews <laughs> yeah and i think uh, and that's something else i think that randy you know he he used to live in a farm out by sterling so he's well invested in the community he knows the community he knows the area well he and like i said the guy is very well connected i'm uh 
it, it, it is a little bit outside the box. Let's be honest. Like you said, he hasn't coached yeah. in a quarter century. But I, I, I'm pretty confident that Randy's going to get this program on pretty stable ground. Well, we all hope so. Um, we know it was a, it's been a tough, tough several years for Warrior men's basketball. So we're ready to ready to see what Randy can do. And and there is a meet and greet for the new coaches. If anybody is interested at Studio ninety six this Friday morning at nine a.m., you can come and meet Randy and uh, Darren Jackson, the new. Um, men's football coach and all the other new coaches um, at Sterling College. Again, that's hey, Scott, can I bring up something really quick like before you move on? Sure. If they really want to get weird, all right? If they really want to get weird, how about this for how about this name for an assistant coach with Randy Stang? Craig Fletchall. Oh my. <laughs> I got your head spinning now, don't I? Uh yeah you do. <laughs> the, the, Former doubles tennis players together at Hutchinson Community College. And, boy, I know that's probably a little too much to take in. But, boy, you want to make Sterling College men's basketball even more fun, bring Fletch in as an assistant. Well, I will certainly be um, anxious to, to, to meet and work with uh, Randy come next fall and winter. It'll be I think it's going to be um, a lot of fun. Another interesting topic I saw pop up. I actually I think it came up right before we recorded last week, and I didn't get it onto the agenda I did this week because we, we talked a lot about um, after the NFL season, Brad, that the the lack of minority hires had continued and that the Rooney rule um, cur- as currently used or applied was just not working. Did you they had come out now with a new um, I don't know exactly if there's a name for it, basically an NFL minority policy that Come for the 2022, so this fall for the NFL season, every NFL team must have at least one minority coach um, or staff personnel, which could be either African-American or any minority or a woman on their staff come um, for this NFL season. So um, what was your first reaction when you saw um, this new policy and do you think it is a a good first step in the right direction? I understand what they're trying to do. I do. And I'm sure that the intentions are good, but maybe instead of forcing teams to do that, why not maybe incentivize it a little? Is that a word incentivize? I think it is. Okay. Well, why not offer incentives? How about that? Why, Why not offer incentives perhaps? for a team that um, that maybe meet, meets a certain criteria for minority hires on staff or within the front office or something like that, instead of forcing it, why not incentivize it? Maybe something like, I'll just give an example. You know, maybe if, if you reach a certain threshold or maybe if you have, you know, 25% minorities on, on staff, including perhaps women. Why not say, okay, if you reach this threshold, you can have like maybe a sandwich pick between the fourth and the fifth rounds. You get an extra draft pick or something like that. I I, I know what they're trying to do, and I think it's with good intentions. I'm just not sure that this, that forcing it is the way to go about it. I know they, I know why they did, obviously, the the blowback, and rightfully so, it's there because of the lack. And it, it is, it is disgraceful, in my opinion. Um, so many qualified minority candidates that just continue to get passed up um, for these new hires, whether it be front office or coaching or even assistant coaching. I'm very hesitant when you force something upon teams that they're just still going to go through the motions like they have done with the Rooney rule, where you have to interview at least one minority candidate. I I just feel like teams are going to go through the motions and pick a lower staff position to, to, to fill out the rule. I, I feel like too much of that's going to happen. I, I like the idea of the incentivizing. Like, again, you pick the threshold. If you pass that, you get an extra draft pick or, or something along those lines. I, I, I do like that idea. And uh, whether it's a good first step, I mean, it is a first step. I, well, I guess we won't know 
for a few years to see how that happens. Now, if some of these um, minorities that are hired move into assistant coaching positions and ultimately get a head coaching position or a job in a front office, then we'll know that it worked. But I don't, I don't know that we're going to know anything for several years. Yeah, it's, it's going to, just kind of like with the college basketball transfer portal, it's going to it's going to take some time to figure out you know the right way to go about this. But you know, I think we're in agreement, Scott, you and I, that forcing it is maybe not the best way to go about it. So that's uh, I just saw that pop up and with the draft coming up, but that was something that um, seemed to be rather interesting, and I'll be curious to see how it does work out. Um, and we'll have. Uh, We'll actually have more football to talk about as I believe it will be a week from Saturday that the reincarnation, I guess if you want to call that, of the USFL um, will kick off a week from Saturday. What do, you, what do you think about spring football and the USFL returning? Oh, I do think that there is a market for spring football. We saw that back in with the original USFL in the 80s. Um, I just wish that there was more kind of like and you and I have been in agree, agreement with this, like more kind of a, a true minor league, like, you know, the one of these teams that can, you know, can work with the Dallas Cowboys and one can work with the, the Kansas City Chiefs and one can work with the Los Angeles Rams and like be their their be, be their minor league team. And I think that would be a better uh, product. I think I think you would definitely have more of an audience if you would, you know, the, the chiefs practice squad players, okay, they're, they're playing this year or, you know, their third string quarterback is out there and their draft, you know, they're the couple of their draft picks are going to be able to play. So uh, I, I, I do think that there's a market for spring football if they do it right. Do you like some of the um, interesting rules that we have? I know there's going to be a three point try um, in addition to an extra point or a two-point play, I think it's um, from the 10-yard line. You can go for three points um, after a touchdown. They're going to do the uh, – instead of an onside kick, you can do a fourth and 15 from your own. I think it's 25 or maybe 30-yard line. And then if you convert it, you can keep the possession. There's a, there's some tinkering with rules like that. Do, do you like those rules – that come into some of these spring leagues that we have seen? I certainly am curious how they'll turn out. I think that um, there's nothing wrong with experimenting with it. I do like the idea of the, fir- the, the fourth and 15, especially as a Chiefs fan. I mean, heck, if the Chiefs are down 10 points late in the game, they get a touchdown or a field goal to cut within one possession. Uh, boy, you're going to give Patrick Mahomes a chance to throw one pass for 15 yards to keep the ball. Uh, yeah, I'll take it. I, I'll I'll be honest. I'm going to watch it when, when they start off the season and, and, and see how it is. I, I, I did what way back when I did watch the original USFL. I watched a little bit of the, um, what was it? The, the, the AAFL here that, or the Alliance of American football. And then the, I, I watched a little bit of the second version of the XFL. Um, I'm intrigued by spring football. I'm kind of like you ultimately, I think to have a long-standing, successful product, I, I do believe it It does need to be somehow associated with the NFL. Now, I have seen um, there's been negotiations. I think it was between the XFL and the CFL to come up with some kind of a partnership. Um, now, I don't know if that would be kind of a, a, a cross play. The teams would play one another. They would combine or what it was. But I, I do think... Uh, ultimately uh, to be successful somehow some way they need to be associated with the nfl yeah the, we're not going to see a challenger to the nfl especially now uh you know the usfl tried that and there was some mild success back in the day but that that was definitely an outlier i just don't think anyone's going to be able to successfully take successfully take on the nfl i think a spring like you said scott i think some sort of association with the nfl whatever that would be i don't know but some kind of development league, I think, would be the best option going forward. You think the USFL ever cashed that $3 check? No, actually, uh, if you ever – have you seen the 30 for 30 about it? I uh, Not all of it, no. Yeah, the, the uh, guy who did the film actually tried to present it to Donald Trump at the end and asked Donald Trump if he wanted it, and Donald Trump just kind of laughed and he goes, no, I don't need it. So uh, <laughs> nice little piece of memorabilia is floating out there, though. 
It would. I think you gotta you gotta have that frame, don't you? Oh, absolutely, framed. And <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's probably past the point where you can cash it, but uh, yeah, that, that that's a heck of a piece of uh, memorabilia, sports history, right there. You should have that along with the uh, verdict that said, "Yes, they are a monopoly." Here's your here's your damages. <laughs> with with the court reading, yeah. yeah. With the court reading, yeah, that would be a that would be rather hilarious. Well, that is our uh, regular topics for this week. Again, if you want to see um, the high school baseball softball schedule, that's up at adastroradio.com on the sports page. I'll have Hillsborough at Halstead coming up on Friday, but we'll go ahead and move on to your final thoughts. Well, Scott, or, yeah, Scott, I just wanted to mention a um, good friend of mine, Scott Styles. I'm, I'm not sure if you know Scott Styles or not. Um, he was a long time, he's a uh, long time PA guy, uh, former uh, football player at Hutchinson Community College back in the 80s, uh, an assistant football coach for several years with the Blue Dragons. And then he was a very popular PA guy. He did PA work uh, all over the place. He did radio shows in Wichita. Good friend of mine. I mean, Scott's, I, I consider him a, a very uh, close friend of mine. He's been battling uh, cancer. He had some spots uh, from his lungs, but uh, I heard from him. Today we're recording this on Wednesday that he's actually been sent home and uh, essentially saying, You're, you look good right now. You don't need to be here right now. And so he was given a not, not a clean bill of health by any stretch of the imagination, but essentially you're not going to get worse for a while. You're not going to get better for a while, but you're not going to get worse for a while. So why don't you just go home and you know we'll check you out again in, in several months or even a year or so. You know, Scott, uh, I just want to say, you know, keep battling, bud. I know that you're going to get through this, and it's very encouraging uh, when uh, you called me to say, hey, I'm coming home for a while, and, you know, it could be for quite a while. And I was, wow, I just really hope that uh, he continues this fight, and it was just great hearing his voice. He was at the 3A state tournament, and, you know, so many people were around to see him. It's, gosh, he's such a popular guy. I, I'd really love to see him do more PA for the Blue Dragons or the National Basketball Tournament again. And it sounds like he's definitely going to get that chance if he's not uh, needs to do anything, you know, for for maybe a year or so. So uh, it's it's really encouraging to see the fight that he's been going through. And um, boy, just hearing him call me today and just say that he's coming home because it, it again, it's not cleared up. He's not out of the woods, but boy, there there are, there could have been a much worse phone call conversation today from Scott to to hear him say that. So uh, definitely very glad to hear that he's coming home and. Uh, maybe doing some PA work, maybe get back on the radio a little bit, whatever he does. Uh, it's going to be great to see him back in Wichita and in around in the area again. Well, that is uh, outstanding news. I mean, I think everybody knows um, somebody that cancer has affected. And th- those are the stories we, we love to hear people that are able to um, beat it and, and continue to, to do the things that they love to do, which it sounds like he'll be able um, to get back to doing that. Uh, I wanted to go back to the uh, national championship game from Monday for my final thoughts. And did you, did you end up watching the entire coverage before they went off the air? Uh, Yes and no. Um, I think I was more attached to Twitter and texting friends and family and whatnot, but I I did have it on. Yes. Well, um, Hubert Davis, you know, every year that they, they always have an interview at some point with the, the, the coach of the losing team and um, I was able to see the interview with Hubert Davis. And I think that every young player and young coach should go back and watch that interview. That was one of the most humble and best interviews I have ever seen with a coach that just lost that level of a contest. He, he started first off with praising how well KU had played, how well they were coached how well their players play, gave all the credit in the world that they were the better team on that night. He then went into how proud he was of his players and then ultimately answered the question um, that was posed to him, why he thought that they had come up short in the game. It was, it, it just was the way that you talk about being humble and defeat and be a gracious loser. Not that he was happy. He was devastated. You could tell that, but with one of the toughest things to do is to, to conduct an interview right after an emotional loss like that. He handled it as well and as gracefully as I have ever seen. And if, if people could watch that and, and mimic that when they face a, 
a, a tough situation on like like that because because we have to face facts. We learn more life lessons from our failures and from our successes. And I think that if, if he just conducted himself in a way that I hope I would conduct myself in if if I had lost something to, on that magnitude. They always say don't follow the legend in coaching. Um, you know, Bill Self actually did pretty well for himself uh, following Roy Williams. It's, it's not easy. Uh, we saw what happened when Dean Smith retired from North Carolina. Uh, was a Bill Guthridge, I think, came in. And had a couple good years, and he retired. Then Matt Doherty came in and was a colossal failure. Then Roy came in and did his magic again. I think that North Carolina is going to be good under Hubert Davis. You know, I'm not going to proclaim three national championships in 20 years or anything like that. But he really left me with a good taste in my mouth about He just seems like a very down-to-earth kind of guy. A guy who's appreciative of what he has, what he's had, and what he will have. I, I just he, – he just really kind of – I don't know, man. I, I think that North Carolina basketball is going to be in good hands. I know there's a lot of uncertainty in a, in a time like this after you, you your your legendary coach retires. Kansas basketball will be in this situation one day when Bill Self moves on or retires. And I think that they made probably the, the probably the I don't want to say the best hire, but it looks like on the surface right now after one season they made the right hire. Yeah. It, we won't know and you know everybody said well these are these are Roy's players and, and they are I mean there's no argument right. that. Um, we won't know how good a, he and his assistants are at recruiting and bringing in that caliber of player for for several years yet but I'm like you um, he seems like a great man again he, I was I admired him the way he, he conducted that interview and I I too think I think North Carolina basketball unfortunately <laughs> is going to be <laughs> fine for us that don't care for the uh, ACC or North Carolina or especially um, the Duke Blue Devils but yeah that was that was a good way I thought for them to end their coverage on Monday night so again uh, you can check out the Ad Astra schedule at adastraradio.com and the sports page and for this week's championship edition of View from the Press Box for Brad Hallier this is Scott Hogan God bless we'll see you next week